Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by about women. And today we have Min Jin Lee here with, with us, and she is the author of Pachinko, out now from Grand Central Publishing. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kendra and Autumn. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, we're thrilled. Like, we've only been talking about Pachinko to everyone for like the last couple of weeks, so we've definitely been looking forward to this. Well, that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. My mother thanks you. My agent thanks you. My publisher thanks you. (laughs) My ancestors thank you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes. We we love this book. And one of the books we first bonded over was Goldfinch. And we love long books. And your book did not feel long. Like, you're just, like, flipping pages and cannot get enough of this book. And I was in a full book coma when I finished it, like sitting on their couch, hugging the book. Harrison, uh, because I'm a huge fan of Donna Tartt. She's great. Yeah, she is. She's like queen of the long novel. Yeah, she does. And she also writes every 10 years. And I keep thinking like, maybe I too could have a career like hers. And maybe Donna Tartt's actually Korean, but I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Kendra and I have actually done math before trying to figure out how many more books we think Donna Tart will write before she stops writing. So. <laughs> well, maybe we can send her some vitamins or something, you know, like, <laughs> take good care of yourself, Donna, because we really like you <laughs> and we want you to keep writing. I can get behind that. I'm sure people send her stuff, so why not something healthy, right? <laughs> exactly. So you said that you were telling us a minute ago that you were on your book tour, so that's going well? Oh, yeah. It's really great. It's really interesting just to sort of visit all these places in the world that I have not seen, like Seattle. I've never been to Seattle, and that was really great. And I um, went to Denver again recently, and I don't – and the, the only problem is that you only get to spend a couple of hours somewhere, and mostly you're in airports, and then you go to the bookstore, and you're in this magical, heavenly place called the Independent Bookstore, and then all of a sudden you leave, and you go right back into the airport, and then you eat some really bad food. <laughs> Which is hard for me because I'm, you know, I like to eat well. Well, at least you get to see some of the best parts of the city, which I think is, an independent bookstore is definitely the best part of any city. I agree. And I've also been to some really amazing ones. Like I went to Elliott Bay. I've been to Tattered Cover. I went to Vroman's. And these are really important cultural institutions of these cities. So I felt really lucky to be there. And then, of course, like, you know, now and then I'll find an amazing plate of French fries and then everything is okay. (laughs) Yeah, I've been following your adventure on your Instagram and there's just so many beautiful places and people and it's been so cool to just follow along virtually. Oh, that's great because it's it's kind of funny because I'm 48 years old. So social media is something that's very new to me. I've been trying to learn how to do it for the past year. And I keep thinking, like, at what point is it bragging or what point is it sharing? And another part of it is it's sort of like publicity because you kind of want to tell people, I'm going to be in the city, so please come and see me because if I face empty chairs, I will cry. (laughs) That'll be bad. (laughs) So it's like this kind of balancing. And then, of course, I talked to all these young people when I was at um, Stanford recently, and they said, well, you want to post. You definitely want to post, but you don't want to overpost. I said, well, what's right. overposting? <laughs> so they were explaining to me overposting, and then they showed me this app called Layout where you put, I guess, several images into one image so you don't take too much of people's time. But, yeah, I'm learning. I'm trying to learn, you know, this old dog can try to learn tricks. And <laughs> Yeah, and then Instagram adds that, well, multiple pictures per post now. And it's like, what? What did you just do? It's funny. I guess we will start talking more about Pachinko. So we've kind of talked about it a little bit, and it's – 
a beautiful, like, multi-generational historical novel. So it starts with this first line, which is, history has failed us, but no matter. And so I guess that's a great springboard for you to kind of tell our listeners who haven't read Pachinko, like, how would you describe your novel and how does history impact the story and the characters? Oh, well, I really like this question because the sentence sort of came to my brain fully formed. And as you can tell, I'm 48. I've produced two whole books. So clearly writing does not come easily to me. So whenever a sentence comes to me fully formed, I'm so grateful. And it essentially is the thesis of my book, which is that I believe that the history is almost like a character and it informs each one of us. And it affects each one of us. And lately, um, you know, I think as Americans, we can feel like, oh, has history supported us or failed us? And I think it's something that people have to sort of think about in terms of the political context in which we live. So I write about Koreans. My first book was about Koreans in America. My second book is about Koreans in Japan. And the history of Koreans in the past 19th and 20th century is a really tragic one in many ways. Um at least in the history books. However, when I spoke to the Koreans in Japan, they didn't feel that they were limited just by history. They felt like they were adapting around it. And I found that their resilience and their surviving skills to be so impressive that I actually had to revise an entire manuscript and write the current book, and which really focuses on one family's response to the history um, of their nation and their community. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And as like as, at the beginning of the book, I thought that it was focusing on Sunja, but then as it progressed, it definitely was, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I did feel like the history became more of a central character than like just her, you know, it kind of expanded as it went. Yeah. And it's funny because I think most of the times we think of history as being something really dry or boring. But I guess for me, what I realized is that history is constantly affecting us. Like, for example, like yesterday, um, the South Korean president was impeached. So the first hmm. first woman president that Korea ever had, South Korea ever had, was impeached yesterday. And now that she doesn't have immunity affecting her She's going to face prosecution charges of bribery, and she'll probably be put into jail. And I'm only mentioning this because for me as a novelist, that part is kind of like, yes, history happened. However, I'm more interested in the fact that two people actually died during the protest yesterday. They actually were protesting on her behalf and supporting her, and they just passed out because it was too exciting for them. And for me, I'm not. I think that the leaders of history – are interesting and there's a lot of airtime given to them. I'm more interested in people like you and me and our responses to what happens every single day and what makes us act or not act. And, and also what our central concerns are on a day-to-day basis, which are not necessarily headlines. Right. I think you can definitely see that in today today lives of Sunja and her family and everything they did to try to make ends meet and move forward uh, with their lives. Oh, yeah. I think that actually when I was studying the historical impact on the daily lives of people by studying war diaries or in my personal interviews, I found that most people are really concerned about the things that you and I really care about. Like, who 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 do we love? How do we take care of our spouses? How do we take care of our children? What do we do when we're sick? And especially when it came to things where, where historical facts like wars, 
affected people. Most people were really concerned about food. They're really concerned like, well, where am I going to find rice? Or to whom do I trust? Because people were spying on each other. Or if they had a job interview, where would they find shoe polish? Because shoe polish wasn't available. People talk a lot about needle and thread because you had to repair your old clothes because new cloth couldn't be found. And those are the central concerns, much more so than the San Francisco Peace Treaty or who would divide um, an entire nation and, and essentially create a barrier between South and North. People were talking about those things, but mostly they're really concerned about how am I going to feed myself? Yeah, I think that rolls excellently into our next question, which is um, about your research. And so you've talked about on other interviews that you know this book went through several drafts, and then how you were interviewing Koreans who are living in Japan, which is the primary focus of this book. Um, and how did the interviews change the direction of the story from the previous draft that you had been working on? And were there any stories that you heard that didn't make it into this final draft? Um, there's a lot of stories that I heard that didn't make it into the draft, and I think that they didn't make it into the draft because in some ways they're so similar. Like one of the similar things that I found is that a lot of the Koreans in Japan that I interviewed, many of them would say things like, well, I don't really face discrimination on a day-to-day basis. And I would say, oh, that's terrific. And then I would start taking notes and I would start asking them more questions about, let's say, their high school experience or their college experience. And that invariably, almost all of them would mention how they had fallen in love with a Japanese person. And that person would allow them to come visit their home. And that person wouldn't marry them or introduce them to their family. So the stories that didn't make it were the stories essentially which became so common actually in my interviews that only one of them made it, but maybe nine of them didn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it just seems like they expected, you know, that kind of treatment as Koreans in Japan that they didn't, did they not think it was discrimination, but just like the way life was? Exactly. That's exactly what they thought it was. They didn't think it was some sort of hatred. They just kind of thought, well, what do you expect? Because Koreans are seen this way. So how can you blame them for being ashamed of me? And and it was so fascinating because I'm a Korean American. I wasn't born in America. However, I'm a naturalized citizen today. And I spent almost all of my life here because I came here when I was seven. And I think that my sense of entitlement about what citizenship means was so clearly informed by the social norms of America, which require that we are kind to those who don't look like us. And all my life, I had been treated so much better than um, the people who are Korean in Japan. But I think that when I thought, wait, how can they do this to you? Because no one had done those, those things to me. That I think I realized that my sense of indignation was something that was a luxury because I had been treated well, whereas people in Japan had been treated like that, and it was so acceptable to treat people this way. And politicians often gave the rhetoric of this way to leaders, as well as middle-class people, as well as ruling-class people, as well as the law allowed this discrimination to occur, that they had internalized these feelings of being a lower-class citizen. And that was really shocking to me. It was it's very as I read the book, I, I 
personally just kept thinking, you know, we're so used to, you know, if you're born in the United States, you're a citizen, you know, so even if you, you know, if an immigrant couldn't get citizenship, you know, at least their children could if they were born in the country. And I just kept thinking, you know, these are like third generation, you know, people living in Japan and they're still not considered citizens. And it just like kind of blew my mind. And it just reminded me, you know, why people, you know, went to America, but also that I just, I don't think I could mentally get around like my place in my homeland if people would not accept me, even though I'd been there just as long as, you know, you know, other, you know, people had. It just, this was amazing for me, you know, it just blew my mind. That's just what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I, I I felt exactly the same way. And I kept on feeling like, I don't get it. And, and at the same time, this is what's the other paradox of going to a country where you really respect the country too, because even as Japan treats Koreans in Japan this way, Japan has so many things that you can recommend from it. Like Japan is an incredibly cool place and it has really amazing people and great culture and parts of its history are very impressive. And and Japanese Americans certainly have faced the brunt of discrimination in America where they were sent to internment camps and they were the ones in Japan being bombed by atomic bombs. So obviously, like the three of us, we all know that history is so complicated in this way because we can't just fault a nation for its treatment of one people. So I think for me, it was always so confusing because you want to be able to say this is wrong. And I disagree at the same time, not be guilty of maligning an entire country and people. So for me, I think the reason why this book took such a long time is because I wanted so much to give balance and nuance to the complexity of hating a group because it isn't always so obvious. And I personally had difficulty with it. I think if you're very successful in finding that balance because I felt like the deeper I got into the story, the more complex feelings I had about it. I mean, at one point I was really kind of confused because at the point where we get where um, um, Moses, what I can't remember his Japanese name. Yeah, but it's totally correct for you to say Moses, yeah. So when we're learning about like the his girlfriend and her daughter and all these things I was a little like at first I was like I don't really under like I don't really understand why why we're going here at this point like did you deliberately include like other narratives as a way to round out the picture of what everybody was experiencing in the culture at the time that's precisely what it is is that I, I felt like they're not living separately that's the thing is that Initially, when the Koreans went to Japan, they did live in ghettos, and they were forced to live in ghettos. However, even as they worked, lived in ghettos, they had to work often for the Japanese because they're the ones who are going to employ you, and they had money. And then gradually, with every generation, they become more and more integrated, and assimilation occurs to the point when Moses and Etsuko can date. However, one of the things that I wanted to explain was that it isn't as if every Japanese person is feeling loved and accepted by his or her country because many Japanese people who are not, who don't fit into the social norms are often punished in the same way Koreans are punished. So for example, if you're divorced, like being divorced is something very scandalous 
for a certain generation. And certainly if you're divorced because you had affairs with men, that would be considered incredibly scandalous. So Etsko really suffers because of her social norms, and she loses custody of her children as a consequence of it. And this thing actually occurs today, that the divorce laws often in certain countries like Korea and Japan often give children to men because men make money. So women actually lose mm. custody. It isn't like in the United States where they, the courts often see the, uh, the female parent as usually being the parent who should have custody and where men would necessarily give money or alimony payments. And that was interesting to me, too. And then, of course, the children who suffer a kind of social stigma of having a parent who did something wrong, according to their society, have to suffer generationally. And that's the whole problem with when a society rejects you, is that you're not the only person who suffers. Everybody around you suffers. And that's the reason why sometimes in Japan, when you cause shame to your family, you have to remove yourself, either physically or sometimes through suicide. And I found that to be shocking. Yeah, like, I I love, love isn't the right word, but I thought it was just so moving how you portrayed so many female portraits throughout the generations. So not just of Korean women, but also, you know, you have several Japanese women featured throughout the story. And one of my questions, there's a little bit of uh, uh, backstory, I guess, to why I want to ask this question. And I'm also going to stumble through it because I'm trying not to give away any spoilers. Uh, but I think you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so there is a moment um, involving uh, Sinja's son where she is devastated and she comes home and talks to her mother and her mother is really angry. And she says, you know, it's a woman's lot in life to suffer. And then Sunja has this kind of interior moment where she's asking herself, has she failed her sons? Because she did not tell them to expect, you know, suffering in this life because both her sons are very ambitious into moving forward in society. And I think Noah especially is trying to just be, he just wants to be normal. He just wants to be Japanese. And there is um, kind of like the good immigrant kind of idea of uh, being a good Korean. And I wanted to ask you, you know, where did this idea come from and how does it affect Koreans now living in Japan? Oh, I actually think that most Koreans in Japan suffer from what Noah suffers from. Their attitude is, if I try really hard, then they're going to like me. And I'm going to be a good student. I'm going to follow all the laws. I'm going to learn Japanese faultlessly. And I will be a very good, productive person. And yet, what is so interesting is that in Japan, the best you can be as a Korean is the exceptional Korean. So that was compounded over and over and over again in my experience. And if you look at the Japan Times or any kind of English publication that's coming out of Japan, almost every single week you'll find some story of discrimination because foreign journalists are, you know, continuously outraged by this idea. So one of the things that I'm kind of trying to discuss, which I think is also timely in America as well as in any other country where there's an oppressed minority, is that I found that cross-culturally and universally men feel that they need to be good providers. However, my question about masculinity is, if a man needs to be a good provider, and if the larger society does not allow that oppressed minority male to be a good provider by not allowing legal employment, then what should he do? 
So I'm just asking a very similar, a very structural question. Like, if you can't get a job, even if you go to college, and you can't become a teacher or a policeman or a nurse, and for, I mean, forget white collar ruling class. I mean, we're not talking CEOs here. We're talking regular jobs like postal clerks. And then what do you do? So in Japan, what many Korean men have done is to open independent businesses. For example, like pachinko or yakiniku parlors, yakiniku restaurants, which are essentially bar- Korean barbecue restaurants. And they had to go into these fields where they would not traditionally have gone into, but they had no choice. So with Noah and Moses, they both indirectly end up in pachinko, not because when they were growing up, they, they decided, oh, I really want to be a pachinko parlor operator or manager or owner. They did it because there was nothing else. And it isn't like they didn't have other dreams or wishes, but that's where they end up going and they channel all their ambitions in that field. And those fields, though, like owning a pachinko parlor still isn't like it's frowned upon by society on the whole, right? Yes, today. And what's the paradox is that pachinko as an industry is a $203 billion industry. That's twice the export rev. I know. That's twice the export revenues of the Japanese auto industry. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So pachinko is not something little. It's just that we don't know about it because it's like a game or a gambling game, only pretty much unique to Japan. However, it's a $203 billion business, which as you can imagine would have many facets. So they would have pachinko machine manufacturers, pachinko operators, employees, uh, gift Parlors. There's so many different aspects of this industry because if you go to Japan, there you can't really go down two blocks without passing a pachinko parlor, and it's an adult gambling hall. One out of eleven Japanese people play pachinko on a weekly basis. So it isn't like you and I going to Las Vegas once every three years and kind of like living it up. It's it's like you and I going to Las Vegas every week. That's crazy. So, even though it's a two hundred and three billion dollar industry. Even if one out of 11 people play it, pachinko is perceived, though it isn't necessarily true, as primarily a Korean industry. And that's not true. There's actually a lot of Japanese people who are involved in this industry. And for the past 25 years, it's been heavily regulated. So there's very little organized crime aspect to it at all. That said, it's often considered to be something that's um, rife with illegal behavior and it's considered to be something that's very dirty and criminal and low class. So people who work in this business are often seen this way. And, of, of course, people who are working in this business are often seen as Korean, even if they're not. So you're kind of imputing an entire ethnic community with the taint of criminal behavior. And the word that is often used is dirty or low class, those are the words that are often used with the game pachinko. And I guess for me as an outsider and as also as an American, I found that to be really hypocritical. Like, how do you not let people have jobs? And when they finally find jobs that the entire nation actually seems to support, why would you call that job dirty? I, that's just so fascinating. Like, I'm, I'm processing that for a second because that is just so crazy. Like, you're right. It is, it is incongruous. So I, one question I had, and I noticed this, like, midway through the book, was that much like Pachinko, um, the family's f- fate kind of seems 
to play out like a pachinko game. Like early in the early in the novel when Moses is learning how the parlor works and he's being shown like how the pins are, you know, adjusted and things like that. That seemed like really set the tone. So like where the family, like they have, you know, this outside help, but then like they have, it seems like things are going well for them for a while and then things aren't going so well for a while. Was that something that you intentionally outlined in the book or did it just kind of happen as you were writing it? Oh, actually, I outline a lot. I outline a lot. I revise all the time. I have very, like, long kind of biographies of every one of my characters. I plan my scenes. Like, I'll have a kind of a loose draft of a scene, and I'll write it, and I'll rewrite it to figure out how it works. And then thematically, I'll look back and work to see if it works accurately in terms of theme and the thesis that I had intended for every scene and every chapter. So if you actually die, if you diagram one of my characters, you will actually see the changes that he or she uh, are making. Because to me, I think that the reason why people can be entertained as well as educated, as well as to feel something, they're very simple rules that Aristotle has actually talked about in poetics. It's just that it takes time to follow those rules to figure out like whenever you read a book and you're kind of thinking, that was really interesting or really pretty writing, but then I didn't feel anything, in a way, the author has failed you. So if I have failed to make my reader feel something that I or not learn the idea that I wanted to share with my reader, I don't think it's the reader's fault. I actually think it's my fault. And I think that's something that I think about a lot when I write because I think asking somebody for 10 to 20 hours is a big thing. I mean, and also, to, you know, to pay $27 for a book, that's a big thing. In the same way, if something is really entertaining as well as edifying, I believe that people don't really care about how much you pay at all. Well, I definitely so, felt something reading this book. <laughs> so you were successful. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I mean, it's really important to me because books are so important to me. And books yeah. were... They have always been so important to me, and I, I didn't know how to speak English when I came to this country, and it's really primarily through books that I started to understand not only just how to read and write, but also how to talk and understand social situations, because I grew up incredibly socially awkward. Like, I, you wouldn't have been friends with me when I was younger, because I was that really awkward person who would either not talk or say the wrong thing, and if it, if it weren't for so many novels that I read about manners or novels of ideas, I don't think I would have been able to handle so many situations. So when I think about certain authors, I feel such an incredible sense of gratitude because they shared everything they knew and they spent it on that book. And I feel like there are all these things that I've learned about life. And I like being 48 years old and this is what I've learned about this entire community, and I want to put it in this one volume. And I think that to be able to take up space in somebody's house or in a library shelf, it's a big thing. It's not something, it's not a joke to me. I mean, to me, it's something very, very, very important to me about it, very significant, almost kind of like a sacred thing that I'm, I'm participating in. And I know that sounds terribly lofty, but. No, it doesn't sound as lofty as you think it does. Especially since. Uh, there hasn't really been anything written on this community, especially at least, you know, fiction wise that, you know, the average person would reach out and, 
read. And I had never really heard anything about this community. I didn't even know it existed. And then, you know, you write this book and you have kind of opened that wide and made, you know, there's a lot of awareness now, I think, for people who read this book and see the different immigrant communities in a different country and how their lives, you know, move through generations and how choices from one generation change the next. And I've, I think you're definitely opening up doors for people's minds with the book. Oh, I'm so glad. And I got to tell you that because it, this is the only book ever written originally in English about the Korean Japanese. Mm. I know this because I've actually researched it. I've looked for it. There's actually one novel right now that I know of that was written by a Korean Japanese, and she calls herself Zainichi, which is totally fine. Um, and that was translated into English, and the book is called Gold Rush. And that's it. Hmm. And that book is not an, it's not a generational book. It's really just a, a sort of a, a moment in time kind of book. And it's also a wonderful, but it's totally a different kind of book than, than I kind of wanted to approach. Um, I was really worried about writing this book because it is the only one. I'm sure others will follow. I hope others follow. I hope there's a community of these kinds of books because I'm not Korean Japanese. I'm Korean American. And I think that the anxiety of being the only book had two impacts. It had an impact on me in two different ways. The first impact was I thought, well, if this book doesn't exist, it's because nobody wants this book. So why am I doing this? Because just understanding the history and the laws were so difficult. And then I had to make it really easy for my reader because I don't want the reader to get all bogged down with all the changes in the law, but I wanted the reader to understand that it's happening concurrently with the story of this family. So that was its own challenge. And the other impact that I had was is that I felt a great sense of responsibility to this community to get it right because if I don't do it right, then maybe somebody else will feel like it doesn't matter. And because this community has suffered so extraordinarily in so many ways, I felt like, oh, I don't want to mess up. Like, it has to be ideal in so many different ways according to these kind of standards that I had for myself. So I think that's the reason why it took well over 20 years just to work on it actively. And then I've had this idea with me for almost 30 years. And I, I think you definitely achieved that. And especially the moment for me was when Solomon had to go register and like request to remain in the country. And I was so mad. I had to put the book down and like, just pause. Like, I cannot believe they did that to him. And my goodness, you, as as you said, you definitely made me feel something right there. That law actually existed for almost 50 years. I know, but that fingerprinting law ended in 1993. Oh my goodness. So if you meet a Korean Japanese person who's like, you know, 40 years old, he or she did those things. And I wanted to give dignity to that process because as a parent, if you take your child, you must be terrified, right? Right. Because how about if your kid says something stupid? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, that would be extremely terrifying because you don't know, like, you don't know what kids are going to say. Yeah. Especially teenagers. Right. (laughs) But that's the only, that, that chapter is the only chapter that survived the first manuscript because that chapter was essentially published in a kind of short story form in the Missouri Review in 2002. So 
if someone said, oh, did you really work on this book for this many decades? I can prove it because if you look at the Missouri Review files, you will see that that story was published in 2002. But that's the only part of the manuscript that really survived the entire change to the second version, which is what was published. Now that we're on the topic of your writing, I guess now would be the perfect chance to ask you about your inspiration. It's no surprise that here at The Reading Room, we're all about female voices. So we wanted to ask you, what are the women authors that have inspired you to write, to keep writing, and the ones that you just love? Well, it's funny because, I have, as I mentioned earlier, that I didn't speak English, so I really learned how to read from books in the public library in Queens. The books that really come to mind that have really changed my life are probably, without question, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and George Eliot's Middlemarch. Those books changed my life. Also, the essays of Virginia Woolf changed my life. When she writes about being a writer, as well as about her questions about illness, because I had an illness for a long time. And I think the essays of Joan Didion changed my life. The essays of Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks have certainly affected me profoundly as a feminist. I also think that in terms of modern writers that I really admire, Alice Munro, I would fall on a sword for. I mean, she's, you know, perfect. So those are the writers that I could think of. Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye pretty much opened the door for me in a way that I never expected. And I can't imagine not having these women as my literary heroes or sheroes, as people say. <laughs> well, you can't see it, but I'm, I'm nodding my head like, yes, 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 yes. Like, I love like, oh, man, so many good, good writers in there. Oh, man. Yeah. Virginia Woolf is my absolute favorite. I mean, obviously, she's in our logo and her essays are just phenomenal and funny and they really are just undersold. So brilliant. And she's so brilliant. And I kind of think like when I read her essays, I think that the precision and the clarity of her mind are so amazing. Oh, yes. Her ability to make mental leaps and then to give evidence and then to make the next argument so coherently. And I always wonder like how lonely she must have been because she must have been the smartest person, not in the room, but like in the city. Like, who did did she talk to? (laughs) But I'm so glad that she wrote her ideas down. I mean, she was essentially a self-published author. Definitely ahead of her time, too, I feel. So is there anything you're working on now, or are you just taking a break and touring and talking about Pachinko? I'm actually writing some book reviews right now, um, and that's been fascinating because I get to read books that I wouldn't normally have read or that I wouldn't have read so early because I'm re- I get the galleys. Um, yeah. And that's really nice. The other thing that I'm working on is my third book, for third novel, which is called American Hogwan. And it's part of this trilogy of the Koreans, the first being free food, Koreans in America. The second is Pachinko, which is Koreans in Japan. And the third one being American Hogwan, which is about the role of education for Koreans around the world. And it will focus on a tutoring center based in New Jersey and in New York. And the tutors that they employ, in which many students from America and around the world attend in order to kind of emulate these cram schools that they have in Korea. A hagwon, H-A-G-W-O-N, is the Korean word for a cram school. And it's these institutions in which Korean children go to suffer pretty much almost all their lives. 
they spend pretty much three o'clock until like midnight or one in the morning at these study centers. And that's the reason why you have these phenomenal test scores coming out of South Korea because of these hogwans. And now they're being really replicated in the United States. So I wanted to write about the the value as well as the dangers of education for Koreans around the world. Well, we will definitely be looking for that. Sounds amazing. And now I'm going to have to go back and read um, your first novel so I can get the whole picture. <laughs> and then you'll know everything that you've ever wanted to know about Koreans and more. <laughs> Which isn't a bad thing. So now that you know to be on the lookout for Min Din Lee's next book, uh, I will have to say that is all the time that we have for this interview. Uh, do you want to take us out, Autumn? So that's our show. We'd like to thank Min Jin Lee for talking to us about Pachinko, which came out in February, published by Grand Central Publishing. You can find her at her website, minjinlee.com, or on Twitter at minjinlee11. And we will have links to all her pages and social media on our show notes, so you can find it easily there. And you can find us, Kendra and I. Um, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter at Autumn Privet and Kendra at KD Winchester. And of course, if you listen to our podcast, please drop us a review. It greatly helps us out. And thank you all so much for listening to the Reading Room Podcast. Talk to you later, guys. Bye.